Great. Thanks, Peter and band. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for being here today, uh, especially if you're new. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Uh, we're in a series right now in the Gospel of John, which we're going to uh, wrap up in mid-May, it looks like. So we're kind of almost starting to uh, get there. A longer series for us, longer book of the Bible. So, uh, But we're um, just last week, actually, we kind of crossed a bit of a a line in the sand in terms of like if you were outlining the book, we move from kind of the, the former stories to the passion narrative proper, uh, which is the suffering narrative of, of Christ. And so we uh, looked at his arrest last week, which will kind of spill into today's passage, and uh, just kind of continuing to look at this story um, that's really highlighted. Today we'll look at Peter uh, and some of the things that he does kind of in a contrasting way with Jesus. I'll get there. Um, but looking at this story about Jesus doing what we can't do. Uh, coming into the world to die uh, like a common criminal uh, in the worst of ways, the most humiliating, uh, the most painful of ways for people like us who deserve that, who, um, whose sin uh, leads us to a state of deserving. Um, I think one of the songs we sing here uh, uses the phrase, as we run our hellbound race, uh, and it implies that Jesus interrupts that. He comes in, in the middle of that and gets in the way of that and stops it and um, brings us into his family. So that's the gospel. Uh, but today we're going to pick up in John 18, 12 to 27. If you have a Bible want to turn there, uh, feel free to do that. Or there's a P Bible in front of you too or a phone app. That's great uh, if you kind of want to see it in context here. But we're going to pick up right from last week in uh, verse 12. I'll read this here in full to begin. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard that Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Um, that's probably uh, the... Um, the uh, disciple John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, is probably being referred to there. John has kind of a habit in the Gospel of referring to himself, put himself in the story, just not by name. So there are other theories. We don't know this for sure, John, but it's likely um, that this, was, this other disciple was uh, John himself, if you're, if you're wondering. All right, verse 17. You are one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus heard this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. 
All right, so there's a little bit of uh, literary context here, some important things to mention um, by way of reminder. But if you haven't read John or are just joining, these are important things. John's kind of pointing back to a couple of things earlier in the gospel here. Uh, the first is from John 13, 38, where it says, Then Jesus says to Peter, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So this is just a straight-up predictive prophecy of Jesus. He, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows Peter's going to deny him three times. And he knows a rooster's going to crow right in that moment. So this is just a, a very blatant display of Jesus' divinity. He's God. He knows the future. He's God's son. Um, but it's also a callback to Peter's um, failure, his uh, limitations. We'll talk about that here in a bit. His um, kind of brash, high view of himself and how that failed, and, um, and how that was a conflict of, with what the gospel really is. The gospel is Jesus loving us and serving us, um, and, but Peter thought it was different. Peter had, had an idea that Jesus came into the world to be served by us, or to be fought for by us, or impressed by us, and Jesus will have none of it. He uh, challenges Peter here and corrects him uh, in not, not just this verse, but context, and so uh, if you missed that or forgot, that's an important kind of background bit of information here with what's happening in today's passage. I'll revisit it later too. Uh, then also here, uh, the second piece uh, is from John 11. Uh, John reminds us that Caiaphas, the high priest, was the one who gave the unintentional prophecy of it's good if one man should die for the people. And so by that, he meant, let's just kill Jesus. It's better that he dies then an uprising start because of him, and then more people die because of that uprising. But if it's a prophecy, then it's actually God speaking through Caiaphas. It becomes his words, kind of like the old prophets, or the prophets of old in the Old Testament. They were human beings who were imperfect and sinful. They used their words, but it's actually God speaking through them. I think in 1 Peter 1, actually, it says that the, that the prophets were speaking beyond themselves. They didn't quite know what they were saying. And so it's the same here. It's not just that... Um, Caiaphas's words became some kind of, you know, parable for some future reality by chance. It's actually that God is speaking through Caiaphas, that these words become God's. And if that's the case, then it's, uh, it's more than Caiaphas's better that one man die than a nation perish. It's actually God saying, better that I die than you. It's, better, it's God saying, better that I suffer. It's, be, it's a better thing if I go through this torment than you suffer an eternal death away from me. Or better that my son die than you die. Better that I suffer on a cross that, than you suffer uh, eternal death. You see how that's a twist and how it personalizes it? This is not just a, a, a lucky um, you know, blind swing and he hits a home run here for Caiaphas. This is actually God saying, these are actually my words. I'm saying to you, it's better if I suffer. It's a better thing. Better for me, better for you. I want that so you see my love for you. That's how it becomes a prophecy. And Caiaphas plays an unsuspecting uh, role in that. All right, just kind of revisit that briefly. That serves also as some important background information that is revisited here as well. There's also a literary device here uh, of contrast between Peter and Jesus that a lot of people, like if you were to pick up kind of a commentary of almost um, any shape and size on this passage, uh, this will likely be mentioned uh, on some level. But a contrast between Peter and Jesus kind of literarily. Some of it's obvious, some of it's not, but these are the four big things 
A contrast between Peter warming himself and Jesus sacrificing himself. We also see Peter not taking responsibility for Malchus's ear. That was the guy that he cut the ear off of last week, if you were here for that, the named servant of the high priest. Versus Jesus openly owning what he said. So Peter's hiding himself. Jesus is saying, I'm very openly saying these things about me and about salvation. I'm not hiding them. I've been been very public this whole time. Uh, There's a difference here between Peter saying, I am not, versus Jesus saying, I am. That happens multiple times in this passage. It's very intentional linguistically to show that contrast. And then the last one would be Peter backing down to a slave girl as a coward versus Jesus very bravely going toe-to-toe with um, the father-in-law of the high priest first, Annas, but then uh, later here, Caiaphas, the actual high priest that year as well. But the big question here, these are interesting things to see in one level, but when you do theology, you have to go past that. Um, When you search for meaning in Scripture, um, it's more than this. You have to ask, like, well, what does that really mean, though? Like, where's the gospel uh, in these things? Or is it aside from these things? It could be that as well. Um, And so what I want to do today is look at this from the angle of, as though it's a story, because it is, um, and this angle of Peter's bad day, which is the understatement of probably the, the morning here. Um, but Peter's bad day. Peter is uh, a confident man um, who um, trusts very highly in himself and what he's able to perform for Jesus. Um, but that all comes crashing down. It, it's, uh, it's kind of a uh, self-revelation he's having here. Um, it's, uh, and it's not a comfortable thing for him. It's, you could argue it's a good thing, actually, and it is for him to come to terms with this. This is a big moment in his journey, spiritual journey, but this is a bad moment um, and, and it's revealing. So what I want to do then is look at kind of a couple big angles today. We're going to start with this passage. Uh, it's a very big, big part of the, all four gospel accounts, this, um, this like threefold denial of Jesus Christ that Peter does. Um, and so I want to talk first, about, first of all about how this is just a story about sin. Like a lot of stories and passages are in the Bible, um, it's, it's blatant, it's, um, it's unabashed, it's uh, held out there for us to see clear as day. Uh, Peter's a microcosm. Uh, uh, to borrow words from John Piper um, about Israel in the Old Testament, I want to borrow those and use those for Peter here. Uh, it, when he says, uh, Peter is the historical theater of the conscience of the world. He's the historical theater of the conscience of the world. In other words, he's a picture of all of us. Uh, and there's a sense to which he's a particular type of Christian as well, and, and we'll get to that later. So he's a picture of all humanity, but also a kind of a picture of what it means to follow Jesus uh, uh, too. But this is a tough passage. You re- if you really slow down and think about it, it is very dark and, again, maybe more of a mirror to us than we want it to be. Um, one of the things we see here, if in, at any point, or if in any way up to this point, this has not been clear, it's clear here, that Peter, Jesus' number one disciple, is not the hero. Nor are we. We're not the hero of the biblical story. We're not the hero of our own stories. Uh, Peter's not the hero. And so before we get to the good news, it's actually helpful uh, here to kind of like unpack or kind of click on this word sin. Uh, it's a big word. The Bible uses it all over the place, but it's a word that can kind of get lost in the fray a little bit and um, used either wrongly or used kind of too broadly that we don't kind of really understand it. Um, We use the phrase sometimes here, kind of our great predicament or 
something like that when we refer to our, our state, our sinful state before God. Two things, though, this is not comprehensive, to be clear, but two things that I think are really helpful, two sides of the one coin when it comes to understanding this uh, that I want to walk us through. And, and, and the first is, sin is seen in not measuring up. And I put seen in parentheses because in one sense, sin is just not measuring up. In another sense, it's seen in it because um, it, it depends on what you, what you mean by uh, or whose standard we're talking about. If we're talking about God's standard or a moral standard and we don't measure up, then that is sin, just flat out. There's no parentheses needed. But if, uh, if by not measuring up we mean, oh, I didn't make the basketball team or something, that's not sin. But we can still see it in it a little bit. We can get, a ref- we can get this um, idea of our limitations uh, in it as well. And so it's kind of, uh, kind of a both end. But the idea here is that Peter had so much zeal for Jesus for following him, for fighting for him, even dying for him, going places for him, doing all this great work for him, that in the end, it just petered out into nothingness. Uh, He mustered up enough courage to follow Jesus all the way to the temple courtyard, but then he stayed outside, and then even when he was let in, he disowned him, not once, not twice, but three times. He wanted to show courage, but failed. He wanted to be there for his friend, but failed. He wanted to be a man of his word, but wasn't able to be. He was a vow breaker and a liar, even when he's trying his best not to be. That's, that's the important thing to see here. He's a, he's a, a liar, a sinner, a vow breaker, um, even when he's trying his best not to be. Even right on the heels of him saying, I promise I'll do this for you, Jesus. He's unable. Uh, he goes a little bit down the road, but he only gets so far. He, he never... He never is able to hop over that hurdle of his own standards. And so that's the point. Sin is missing the mark, our own mark. Uh, and sometimes it's just helpful to think about this uh, sometimes too, maybe especially if you're not a Christian yet, um, because God's standards might not mean much to you uh, at this point in your life. Um, and that is important from a Christian uh, pers- standpoint or perspective, but sin is missing even our own marks. Um, that there is an inner limitation, an inner darkness to us. Something's just off and we know it. Um, the, the bigger and more important the thing is, the harder we find it in us to do it. Uh, it's like Paul in Romans 7. The thing I know I shouldn't, he's saying this as a Christian to Christians. The thing I know I shouldn't do, I keep on doing. Again, this is not a, um, uh, a, a testimony of Paul before he was saved. He's saying this as a Christian. As an apostle, as an author of half the New Testament, he's saying the things I know I shouldn't do, I know it's wrong to do, I find myself, I, I can't help it, uh, but do it. It's, it's this cursed existence, he, uh, he existentially cursed existence, he feels like he's, uh, he's living. On a personal angle, you know, uh, when I think about for myself what a good husband is or a good pastor or a good father or a good friend or preacher, or writer, um, or golfer, or board game player, or whatever, like piddly things too. Um, I, I rarely, if ever, I mean I never do, but in my mind I might falsify this, you know, but I, I never measure up to those standards in my mind. There's, it's all, there's always a gap. There's always something, there's always someone else better. There's always something else I could be. I was talking to someone here at church a couple of years ago, I think, about this, but how we both felt the older that we got, that as each year went by, we felt like we did our jobs worse. 
It's like we are worse at our jobs. Now, objectively, probably the opposite's true. The more you do something, the more experience you have, the better you probably are. But we felt like every year that went by, we felt like there was more of a gap because the more you live, the more you sin. The more you live, the more mistakes you make. The more you live, the more people you know who are better than you. Uh, there's always this gap, and you can always be doing something. More. And so it's just this kind of constant thing, uh, this uh, limitation. It, it, I think like for myself, and um, maybe you can relate, I'm like the law unto myself. I'm constantly exposing the gap. I'm, I'm an accuser almost of my own self. Uh, life is to me. I am to me um, uh, all the time. But again, this is the plight of humanity. Christian or not, this is a sort of uh, part of what we understand sin to be. Um, but sin is also, on the other side of this coin, sin is also being a self-justifier. Um, so with the former thing, sin can crush us, with the latter thing here, number two, it can also inflate us. Uh, there's lots of ways this comes out in this passage today, whether Peter warms, it's the idea of Peter warming himself by the fire versus um, being warmed by Christ, so uh, shown rather than said, um, or, or the fact that he's denying he was the guy who cut Malchus's ear off, which is an inference that John is making, um, or denying Jesus outright for the sake of self-preservation at the expense of others, or just kind of in all of this, hiding his true self. Um, Self-justification is hiding who you really are before other people. It's putting on a display or a mask. It's saying on social media, my day is amazing when it's not, or life's great when it sucks, um, or I'm good when I'm bad, it, you know, uh, or implying that, it, it's, uh, or else in conversation. That's what self-justification is, because when we do that to people, we're doing it before God. It's, it's the same thing. It's, you know, we, we, um, we not think we are, but we in our heart, we, we really, there's a relationship there. Um, the mask wearing before people is the mask wearing uh, before, before God. But all that to say, everything I just said there, all versions of, of, or things that I just said, are versions of Peter saying, I'm not a bad person. Peter's saying, by denying Jesus and denying that he cut off Malchus's ear and, um, and all of this, he's saying, I'm not a bad person. Stop accusing me. Um, he's saying, I'm okay on my own. This is textbook self-preservation. This is textbook uh, self-inflation. It's, it's deflecting. It's pride, really. Pride is the, is the essence of sin. I, I agree with C.S. Lewis on this one. That pride is the worst sin because pride is in all other sins. Uh, pride is saying, I'm God, when you're not. Um, it's saying, I don't need help when you do. Um, you also see this sin in the, one who, the ones who well, the person, I guess, who strikes Jesus. In one sense, it's, it's all of them, but this individual who strikes Jesus. Uh, and it's an odd thing that they strike him in one sense, isn't it? For just saying, uh, I've been very open and public with my teaching. Go and ask those who heard me. And then they, like, hit him for that. But, but if you think about it, the reason they get angry with the, that response is because it infers that they are needy that they need someone else's help, that they are lacking in something that others have and they don't. And Jesus is just very honest and open with them. Go ask other people who have an item of knowledge that you have failed to acquire. Um, and for very proud people, for people who don't think themselves needy, to have someone say that you are needy can be infuriating. Uh, it can be humbling that could be a response we have. Um, doesn't mean we always respond in anger, 
but the most arrogant usually do, uh, especially these men. These are very proud men. They think they're the best of the best. Um, they're the high priest or they're servants of the high priest. They operate on the highest sort of uh, spot on the totem pole of society. To say that uh, none of that matters uh, is infuriating. To say that you know nothing when you think you know everything uh, is infuriating, right? Uh, to say to the, the best baseball player in, the, in MLB that you're terrible uh, at the game, it's like, what? You know, uh, it, it's sort of like this flip um, that, that happens here. And so, the, the sin is in striking Jesus, but actually the, it's actually what's behind the striking that's the greater sin. And that is thinking yourself better than another. Uh, it's actually self-deification. Um, you see it later in the, the passage where they say, how dare you speak to the high priest like that? Which is to say, how dare you speak to, like that to someone like me? You know, um, I don't know if you guys have ever had those moments. Uh, where you, you sort of have this kind of high horse thing of how dare they say that to like, some, like me, this person in this position or this person who's, you know, felt like I've never wronged anybody or didn't deserve that, like that, that kind of idea. That's what, what they're saying. They're, in their arrogance, they're saying, how dare that someone speak like that and try to inform and teach someone like me. I'm the teacher of others. Don't teach me, uh, that kind of thing. Galatians 6 says, um, sin is thinking that you're something when you're nothing. This is, a very, this is just straight up New Testament theology. Thinking you're something when you're nothing. These things are the dragon within and, and, um, and, the worst, and we can't slay it. We cannot slay this dragon. His scales are too, uh, it's too hard, too impenetrable. And, and, and the worst part is we've all done all these things to God himself like, um, like this uh, b- band of soldiers and, and religious leaders are doing here in John 18 uh, to Jesus. Um, We've struck his cheek saying, I don't need you. I, I don't need your assistance or help. I'm good on my own. Um, I'm a good person. I'm imperfect, sure, but who isn't? I'm a good person, though. Um, that's, that's the core of what, what you see. So it's both these layers, and they're, they're both different sides of the one coin. There's more to be said about a definition of sin, but it's, um, it's both of these. Whether it crushes us or whether it uh, inflates us, uh, it, it, uh, the, the reality is both of these things are kind of ah Christ. They're ah gospel. They put the focus on us and standards and our works, the works of our hands, uh, not, not on, on Christ. So the good news then against this backdrop, this is kind of how we you know, normally work through a passage or just talk about the gospel, is this is like the background. Then we move to the good news, which is that Jesus dies for these types of sins in your, in your life and mine and Peter's. Um, there's a reason why all of this utter human failure talk and limitation type stories is juxtaposed with Jesus' trial and death here because Jesus' trial and death are going to be the thing that fixes the problem. Uh, Peter's and our sins are, are this dark backdrop and the, the foreground is the light of the cleansing crucifixion of Jesus uh, and it shines all the brighter the more we understand the background. And so... In case it wasn't clear so far, the point to John 18 is not don't be like Peter. I mean, in one sense, if you take that away, you're not taking away a bad thing necessarily, but that's not the point. The point is you've already been like him. The point is you and I are like him every day. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. This is your existence and this is mine. Uh, Whether perceived limitations, pride, um, you know, thinking that we can earn his favor on whatever level, 
um, that this is, this is our story. Uh, we, he is us, we are him. And then the point becomes less about Peter as a moral measuring stick for you and, uh, and me, and more about the shock value behind, behind how the Son of God would die for someone, someone even like me, even like us, um, who in his or her arrogance has, has struck the cheek of God itself. Like, that's the idea. That's the shock value here, is that Jesus isn't like, outwardly judging him. He's not sending him further away. He's staying on the path. He's going to the cross. He's going to die for these types of sins. Um, There's no moral lesson. He's shouting from the courtyard, by the way, Peter, uh, good Christians don't do what you did. How dare you? Like there's there's no shout of the law coming from the courtyard. There's just him going to die for us. Uh, Just like in the Christian life, every single day, it's Jesus dying for us. Uh, It's not us uh, living under a standard that we we cannot keep. And there's three ways his death is shaped here in John 18. I'll work through these fairly quickly. Um, But I think it's interesting how it's sort of said and shown. Um, Jesus dies for us, first of all, of his own accord. I think when you read the story of Peter being locked out of of the door to the courtyard, that's there symbolically for a reason, to, to symbolize that we don't get to go into the work of, of salvation. Jesus on his own saves us. He says, I am, and Peter says, I am not. Jesus says, I am able. Peter says, I am not able to save myself from my sins. He's not clicking those dots yet, of course, but that's what it's meant. I am not my savior. I am not other people's savior. I'm not able to keep myself saved um, as well. He also does so publicly. Um, when, when Jesus says, I've, I've said nothing in secret, um, it, it means he, he reminds us that he is a revealer. Uh, it reminds us of Christmas time when God became a human because we couldn't become like God and weren't even asked to. Um, we, we couldn't ascend, so he descended. Uh, it, it reminds us that he's not a hider, uh, that his death is not a truth we need to work hard to find or earn but it comes to us out in the open by grace. Um, that's what this like seemingly benign statement of, I said nothing in secret, though in one sense it, it means something else contextually too. He's just saying, this is, I've, I've taught it publicly, like when you're asking me about these things, like I, haven't you heard? In another sense, like he's showing what an open, in the public type savior he is. He's, um, he's not behind closed doors, nor is his salvation, or his, nor is his truth, which means it's not up to you to find it. It's up to you to receive it. Um, if Jesus said everything in private, uh, the opposite would be implied. If everything he said was private, it would imply that you have to figure him out. You have to find him. You have to impress him. You have to figure out the lock combo with your good deeds and unlock it. But, but when Jesus says, I publicly died for sinners, I moved towards them when they were sinning against me. On their worst days, like Peter's bad, bad day, worst day here, I'm still moving towards them. In that, in that way, I publicly died. It, says all, it sends all the right messages about the gospel, that you're saved by him coming to you, not you going to him. That's what that means. And then three, he does so substitutionarily. Um, this goes back to last week a little bit, but uh, meaning that here in this passage, He's struck on the cheek like Malchus was struck on the ear by Peter uh, last week, uh, which in turn means he's taking the place of sinners. And again, if you weren't here last week, 
Uh, I want you to hear this. If you were, be reminded. Um, but Jesus is struck because this Malchus guy was struck. And jo- John is not saying, he's not like, this isn't random. He, he's, he's saying, this individual who represents humanity was struck and harmed on the ear, uh, not just by a sword, but by sin and death and separation from God. Now Jesus is saying, but I'm really the one who's going to be struck. That's why he heals Malchus's ear and, and recovers it. Um, he's taking the place as a struck one for the ones who were struck, by, uh, like you and me. He's going to die for the ones sentenced to death, like you and me. He's going to be crucified for the ones who deserve it. He's going to experience separation from his father for ones who are exiled from God, like you and me. He becomes what he's not in order to replace, uh, take the place of us. Uh, and so when you understand, come to understand what Jesus is doing on the cross, this is a big word for it. There's more than just this, but this is the core. Jesus dies as a substitute. Uh, this isn't a, a little speed bump in the road of the story. Like, oh, he di- it's too bad he had to die, die as a martyr first. He didn't have to. Like, you know, too bad he couldn't teach anymore. Like, that's not the point. The point is this is why he came. He came to be struck for Malchus's who were struck. Um, he came to tell Peter, put your sword away. I'm the one who's going to be struck. It's not up to you to fight for me. It's for, up to me to fight for you. Put your sword away in its sheath and let me take the place of sinners. That, that's, that's his message. This uh, third category then, um, kind of flowing from that, uh, I'm calling following Jesus is messy, but, but there's hope in that. Um, so kind of circling back a little bit to Peter here, as a type of Christian, I mentioned this before, this is where I want to talk about this. Peter's a picture of humanity, but also a type of follower of Jesus. And um, I, I think it's too simplistic to say that the Peter we know about in Acts 2, at Pentecost, if you know that story, where he's filled with the Spirit, preaches the first Christian sermon, it's too simplistic to say that that's the Christian Peter, but this Peter here in John 18 is someone totally different. Um, th- there's no like biblical basis to, un- to, to make that claim, first of all, like it never says that. But it's also kind of, I think, as you look at your life as a Christian, nonsensical and unhelpful. It's the same guy, same person. And, and in some way, I, in a lot of ways, this depicts the Christian life as well. Um, <clears throat> David Ford says about the Gospel of John, uh, John, in his Gospel, resists not only any simplistic one-size-fits-all practice of faith, but also any idealization of it. Um, so think about others in the gospel, like uh, his gospel, like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman uh, in chapters 3 and 4 respectively, or the adulteress in chapter 8. And how Jesus gives, and how John, as the author, I guess you could say, how he gives us different, honest, non-glamorous pictures of what it means to follow Jesus. And, or, or practice faith. Um, and, and the reason why this, I think, is so important for you and me then to understand is that um, we don't move on as, as a Christian when we convert. We don't move on to failing to keep the mark. And um, I'm guessing, like, you guys, I'm guessing if you really think about your life, like, you're not disagreeing with that, but maybe you are. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to presume. But if you really think about your life honestly, this is, this is why it expla- this idea explains your reality better. Like if, you, if, if we say, well, we miss the mark when we're not a, you know, we're unsaved, but when we're saved, we're like the super Christian. Um, 
it, it's not real. Like, no one ever has that life, you know? That there's, um, there, there's a, a sense to which the, the victorious Christian life is something that a lot of Christians can't um, uh, understand or really relate to in, in a lot of ways. And so, um, so, as a Christian, we constantly don't measure up to whatever standard we have in our minds about what it means to be good. That, that's the point. And sometimes we might feel like that we are by God's help and how we fra- phrase that is important, of course. But, um, but, but the good news is Jesus doesn't bristle or blush or push us away. Again, if John 18 is a picture of the gospel, Christ's posture towards sinners, the Christian life, this is extremely good news. It's sobering, yes, but extremely good news. Entirely the point. Jesus dies for people like Peter. People like us. People like the high priest or Malchus or adulterers. People with pasts, limitations, failures, fears, doubts, inabilities to measure up. People who have bad days. He dies for them. That's the point of John 18. I can't stress it enough. Uh, John can't stress it enough. Your relationship with God is built entirely on Jesus' work for you, not yours for his. In fact, in Jesus, there are no standards. This is not something Christians talk about or should, or should have to talk about. Um, we don't talk about standards that much because in Christ, they've been erased. Walls have been brought down. Um, ladders have been, ha- have, have been cut out from underneath. Um, there's no trophy cases. Galatians 3.28 says there's no male or female in Christ. There's no slave or free. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no partiality. There's no distinction anymore because you're saved on the basis of grace and not what you do, not what you bring, not how you were born or, who, or how much money you have or how much you understand about theology or any of that. There's no partiality um, and so the idea even of standards, though we apply that to ourselves um, and we're crushed by them or others, other people do or the law of the Bible does or the devil does or constantly being accused, Jesus, because he operates by grace, erases standards. There, there, are, there's no, there, there are none. Um, even Paul in the New Testament in the, in the city of Corinth, the, the, the church there believed there was such thing as a super-Christian Uh, of sorts, and so Paul kind of makes fun of them for that. Uh, It's interesting. He's the the most sarcastic Paul you ever want to see. It's probably there. Or maybe Galatians 4, too. He gets kind of snarky. But the book of 2 Corinthians 2, he's uh, off the charts. Sarcastic. It's awesome. Uh, But but there are are no such thing as a super-Christian. Either you are or you aren't. That's that's the the glorious point. Maybe hard for proud people to hear that, proud Christians to hear that. thinking that what you do as a believer is to your credit, um, it just isn't, you know? And so whether that's hard or great to hear, maybe a little bit of both, um, please hear that. It's it just, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn God's love or change it. And in Christ, there are no standards. There's just grace. And if there are standards, there is no grace because grace is the opposite of it. At the end of this passage, there's a rooster crow. Um, I know a lot of you know this part of the story. It's interesting. Um, Peter, so, so not a lot of people get an alarm going off whenever they sin, but Peter did. Um, it's sort of, it's this moment of like, if we all had a little red 
buzzer or light in our head every time we were sinning, you know, and it would be going off constantly. Uh, we'd be carrying shame all, all, all around, right, all, all the time, and uh, we would never go outside. Um, but, but Peter has this moment where there's this siren that goes off publicly of you have failed to meet the mark. Uh, you have failed um, to keep your word. Uh, you have denied the Son of God outright. Uh, it's, so again, I, I, it's Peter's bad day. I should have said Peter's worst day ever, but whatever. Uh, it, it's a terrible time. And so it signifies, the rooster's crow then, this is partly why it exists, um, to fill, fulfill Jesus' prediction and basically shine a spotlight on Peter's ineptitude and lack of ability to keep his promises. Um, and I would say the rooster has crowed for us as well. Um, not in the same way, literally, uh, literally obviously, but um, the rooster has crowed for us as well. But there's another way to understand the crow. I want to kind of twist this diamond in the light. I don't know if you guys have thought about this before. I think this is an important kind of counterpart uh, piece to this. Um, another way to understand the crow, not only as a reminder of sin, but as a sign of hope. Uh, and the hope is, and maybe I'll ask it in the form of a question, um, when do crows, or when do roosters crow? Like what time of day? The morning, right? As the sun is coming up. And so the hope is that roosters crow at the dawn. Uh, the, 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 and so the rooster here in the story is a sign of the coming light against the backdrop of Peter's sin, not like being slow to rise, like a Peter's sin, Peter's sin is like, oh my gosh, is it daylight savings time? You know, the, the sun's coming up later today or something. Like it didn't, it didn't even um, budge. It, it didn't, uh, didn't miss a beat. Um, and so the rooster's crow is a sign of Christ himself. John has been clear in the gospel that um, Jesus is the light of the world. Um, the Psalms call the sun, the actual sun in the sky, a picture of God. God is like the sun in different ways. Uh, poeti- you know, it's poetry, but it, there's a connection there. Um, but Christ is the one who's about to come into the world to end all the darkness, like the sun rises. Um, bear with me as I, I close with one of my obligatory bi-monthly Lord of the Rings references that maybe three of you or four of you might appreciate. Um, but in the, in the third book, there, there's this um, epic, terrible, wonderful showdown between Gandalf the wizard and his horse Shadowfax and a, uh, what's called a Nazgul uh, or um, a witch king, a, a ringwraith, uh, the, the personification of death itself. It's this clash. Um, and they have a standoff. They call out to each other. They taunt each other. They rebuke each other. They threaten each other. It's an awesome but just horrible moment in the story. And um, right when the the Nazgul raises his blade and um, flames fall down the sword, uh, the scene changes. And it says, in that very moment, away behind in some courtyard of the city, a rooster crowed. Shrill, And clear he crowed, knowing nothing of war nor of wizardry, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above the shadows of death was coming with the dawn. Again, the point to this is um, roosters are um, harbingers of something good. And in the face of this terrible, 
terrible threat, the rooster's like, I don't care. You know, like, I know nothing of that. It means nothing to me. The, the sun's coming up. You know, and, and so then the point theologically for us is when we fail to meet the mark and slap God in the face and self-promote, the sun still rises. We still breathe. Um, There is someone who lives beyond the clouds who is bigger than our sin, whose unchanging grace rises like the dawn every day and scatters the darkness in our heart. And uh, I would also say, whose grace is unfazed by our disobedience and whose love trumps sin. And so, uh, you guys, yet again, be encouraged that Jesus loves you. He forgives you. He died for your sins, like, like Peter. Um, and in, in spite of our best attempts at trying to save ourselves, he still, every single day, puts one foot in front of the other and moves towards us to love us and to save us. Um, believe in him. No, no matter the size or state or stature of your present-day spirituality, um, if you didn't know this, you will have good and bad days as a Christian. Um, the rooster will still crow. The sun will still come up. Jesus will still be on. You should picture his scars. He wants you to see his scars in his hands and in his side. He loves you. He died. It's never going to change. The tomb is still empty. So believe in him no matter the size or stature or state of your present day spirituality. You guys... We're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by the rooster's crow. We're saved by the sound of Jesus' cheek getting struck. Not by the sounds of the works of our hands. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage, uh, for the uh, contrasts it's laden with, um, for Peter's failed promises, and um, for your met promises, for um, our I am not statements or I, I am unable statements and your I am capable and I am willing statements to love sinners and to bring them home. Um, God, forgive us uh, of our sin. Forgive us of the inner dragon we cannot slay, uh, the limitations that we cannot overcome and help us to rely on you instead. Uh, every day, um, there's, not a, there's no laundry list. There's no standard you give um, Following you is messy. It looks different for everybody. Uh, though there are fence lines, um, there's, there's a big gray area in between in a lot of ways. Um, and our lives look different, and it's messy. It's not uh, mechanical. Uh, it's relational. And um, so I pray for your help. When things seem abstract, um, I pray that we would rely on you. It's kind of part of the point. When things are abstract in theology, we rely less on our concrete works and uh, more on your love. And, um, and we sit down and receive. And so um, I pray you'd help us to grow in that, help us to appreciate that, to believe uh, in you, and that we're outside the courtyard. There's a door there. We cannot go into the courtyard of salvation, nor are we asked to. Only you go in, and only you go out, and only you carry the cross and are pinned to it and nailed to it. Um, thank you for loving us and dying for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with this last song.